Radio. Salvation History, a love story, part one. A talk by Dr. Adam Cooper at the Immaculata Mission School, 2015. Held at the Sacred Heart Retreat Center in Croydon, Melbourne. As Sister Mary Michael uh, mentioned, I teach at the John Paul II Institute here in Melbourne. I live on the other side of Melbourne, wherever that is, over that way, uh, west of here in Geelong with my wife and our son. Our son's grown up, just finished university, and been teaching at the Institute for about seven years now in theology, quite a range of subjects, theology of the body and biblical studies and moral theology and some philosophy as well. So a range of, of, uh, of subjects there, and it's been a great blessing for me to teach there because I've been surrounded by, by faithful Catholic Christians who've supported me, who've witnessed to me about the, the goodness of uh, the Catholic Church, the Catholic faith. And, uh, and yet in coming into the church, I didn't feel like I was turning my back on my own Lutheran upbringing. So if there are people out here who are not sort of born and bred Catholics, well, don't, don't feel like you're out of place here. Um, I identify with you. I was blessed in my upbringing by my family, not in the Catholic Church, in a different tradition, but a very rich tradition, rich spiritually, rich also liturgically and sacramentally as well. So in some ways for me, becoming Catholic was about embracing the fullness of all that God had to give me. It wasn't really turning my back. It didn't feel like a conversion. It felt more like a kind of completion. Of course, it's a journey still underway, and I've got a long way to go and a lot of growing to do. And uh, coming along to an event like this is a, uh, a challenge for me too, uh, a growing event for me as well, because I'm faced with a a sea of faces of people I mostly don't know. I won't have a chance to, to get to know you and to try and speak in a way that is personal and pastoral and addresses you and your situation is a, is a great challenge. And I may fail in, in that in the short time we have together tonight, tomorrow morning. Um, it's a challenge also because the topic I've been given is, uh, is a kind of, well, I'll, I'll announce it in a minute, but a fairly abstract-sounding topic. Now, I'll announce it, and you'll think, well, what next? It might sort of fall like a, like, um, like a lead balloon, if you know what I mean. It might not. Let's see how we go. But then again, I was also challenged by the fact that at, in our conversation at dinner time, I was um, struck by how well-read and well-learned in theology and Christian teaching were the people sitting around me. So I hope that I don't uh, disappoint you. Perhaps you have expectations that this will be a really meaty time, lots to get your teeth into, and I hope that I don't let you down by sort of just giving you sort of a milky feed when you want meat and potatoes. So we'll see how we go. I can't please everybody all the time, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here as best as I can to serve the Lord, serve the word of the Lord by serving his people. And uh, I do it in the confidence of his grace uh, in answer to prayers, both from you all and from my family back home. I've been asked to speak to you about the topic called salvation history. Salvation 
history. It's a very fancy word. In fact, it doesn't originate in the English. It originates from the German. And uh, the word in German is Heilsgeschichte. <laughs> Sounds like the sort of thing you might say if you hit your thumb with a hammer. Heilsgeschichte. You want, you want to try it? Let's try it. Heilsgeschichte. Heilsgeschichte. Oh, very good. You see, we, we can probably get some confirmation on pronunciation from, from people who know the German language better than I. Heilsgeschichte does sound a bit like a, German, like a German swear word. It's not. It was invented by Protestant German uh, biblical scholars uh, about over 100 years ago. And... Uh, to, to understand this, well, we don't really need to understand the term so much as we want to, over this tonight and tomorrow morning, to try and grasp really what it refers to. And it refers to the fullness of the deeds of God in the history of the world. The fullness of the deeds of God in the history of the world. See, normally when you study history as a kind of secular science or discipline. It's a kind of study of human life, human activity, human culture, from a this-worldly point of view. So when you study history, you, you gather all the evidence from memory and story, from experience and literature, from politics, from the sciences, from archaeology and so on. And from all that evidence, you try and gather it together and come up with a unified account or story of human existence as it unfolds in different times, in different places, and so forth. That's history as a kind of normal discipline. What's salvation history? How is it different? Salvation history is a way of telling the story of the human race, as it were, from God's point of view. Seeing through God's eyes and experiencing the world with God as the main actor in the world, in the drama of the human life story. That's a different angle than just ordinary history. And so this word salvation history refers, if you like, to a very strong supernatural element at work in history. And at work in a particular history, a privileged history, that unfolds with people like Abraham and Moses and Ezekiel and David, whom we sang about just before. That unfolds with people like Mary, the mother of God. And above all, unfolds in her son, the son of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this word salvation, again, it's a big word. What does it mean? What does it mean when you use it in this term, salvation history? If, if salvation history is the story of God's deeds, God's saving deeds, salvation refers to the character of God's actions as bringing deliverance, as bringing liberation, as bringing redemption, as bringing healing, as bringing wholeness. And, and salvation is in some respects still unfolding, salvation history is yet to be fully accomplished in all its fullness. In some respects, all the hard yakka, all the hard work has been done, and yet the final flowering of salvation history, the full salvation 
which God himself has in his mind as a vision for us, as a vision for humanity, as a vision for his creation, is yet to be fulfilled in all its glory, in all its beauty. That's something that awaits us, and that's something to which we look forward with great hope. Remember at the end of the creed we say, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That's another way of saying we look forward to the fullness of God's salvation being accomplished. That's the goal of all human history. Telling the story of the human race from that perspective, from God's perspective, from the perspective of his activity in the world as the main actor in this drama, means that the whole plot of the story revolves around the person and work of Jesus Christ. God made flesh the Savior and the Redeemer of the world. And that means that every detail in the story also only makes sense in relation to Jesus. You just imagine any other kind of stage play. You've been to a drama of some kind, and there's a plot to it, and it unfolds in various acts and scenes. But usually there's a thread running through it that kind of makes sense and it kind of gathers as it goes and all of the story comes together revolving around that plot, that thread, that seam, that golden seam that runs through the story. If you took that away, if you took the plot away, it would just be a random series of scenes with no connection between them. And often that's what human history seems like. It kind of seems meaningless sometimes. Random acts of violence, random acts of charity and goodness, plots here, plots there. How does it all hang together? But with salvation history, there's a very clear plot, at least clear from God's perspective, and it revolves around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Without him, without his activity in the world, then the whole story of the human race is just a set of purely random Johnny-come-lately kind of nonsensical events in the history of a four-billion-year-old cosmos, four billion or so, give or take, a few million. (laughs) To speak about God's activity in the world, uh, particularly God's saving activity in human history, kind of presupposes a few things. And, And I won't be able to cover all these presuppositions in the time that we have. First of all, it presupposes that this world is, in fact, God's creation, a creation of a God. It's not just an accident, it's not just arisen out of nothing, but it is the purposeful and deliberate and loving activity and product of of an intelligent and loving creator. So it presupposes that fact for starters. It presupposes also that this God is not aloof from the world, sort of separated from it with no interaction between himself and it. It presupposes that this God speaks, that this God acts in a kind of interpersonal way, that this God engages with real human beings, that this God is involved in the fabric of history and in the fabric of his creation, bringing about his good purposes. 
And the story of salvation presupposes all of those realities. So to, in some ways, we, we accept those. We accept those on faith. And if you wanted to get into defending those as a kind of a philosophical activity, well, that would be another exercise. It's not something we would do here tonight or tomorrow. So we presuppose the perspective of Christian faith, that this world is a good creation made by God with a purpose, with a goal in mind, and that this God acts and interacts through human people, speaks to people, engages in the world, sometimes and more often than not in hidden ways, not in very obvious ways, but in very hidden ways, bringing about his purposes. And by the way, that means that history ultimately is not accomplished or dominated by economics or by world politics or by the great superpowers in the world. You watch the news, you look at the internet all the time, you think that the whole world is dominated by these forces. Oh, what's President Obama up to? Oh, what are the terrorists in northern Iraq up to? Oh, what's the market doing? You know, we've got another global economic crisis up our sleeve. We kind of think the world turns on all those things. That's an illusion. Those things come and go. They're just a kind of a whiff, puff of smoke in the grand scheme of human history. Yes, they have sometimes cataclysmic effects. As humans take into their hands power that doesn't belong to them. And yet the truth is that the child who prays the Our Father with faith before he goes to bed does more to change world history than any superpower in the Middle East or in the West or in some New York market. Prayer, faith, love, inspired by God present in human history, these are what history turn on. Another presupposition which I have to mention too to this whole account of the history of salvation is a situation which, if you like, um, blankets all of the human race. And that's a situation of captivity to sin and death and the power of the devil. Salvation, of course, is a salvation for. God saves his people for a glorious goal. But God also saves people from. From a dire situation. From a situation of entanglement and enslavement. From a situation from which people cannot save and rescue themselves. And so there is a kind of universal disability with regards to self-help, in regards to a relationship with God, in regards to achieving the goal that God has for every one of us, reaching human fulfillment. There's a universal state of disability, spiritual disability. And that's the state of, if you like, fallen humanity. We speak in theology of the fall being an event, but let us not just think of it as a past event, something that happened way back then in the dim distant past of Adam and Eve and you know, some snake or something. 
No, let us think of it as a reality that in fact touches each person as they come into existence. That, if you like, qualifies the whole of human nature even now. And from that state of disability, we need help. In that state of disability, we need help. We need rescue. We need liberation. We need redemption. That's a situation which I will speak more about, about what characterizes this situation, what characterizes this state of fallen human nature. But again, the salvation story, the story of God's acts in history to bring about his glorious purposes for us, it presupposes a dreadful situation for human beings. There are a number of angles from which one could approach this topic. And uh, at conversation at dinner time with Sarah, I heard her say that she'd heard a talk recently down in Hobart, a really good series of Bible studies, on the covenants, the covenants in Scripture. And that would be one way, one angle, at which we could approach this, this story, this account of salvation history. We could, we could study together these covenants, these um, kind of binding promises that God sets up between himself and various people through history and follow their unfolding right throughout the scriptures, right throughout history, starting with, say, Abraham some 2,000 years before Christ. We will certainly look at some of the covenants, but that's not the angle of approach I'll, I'll be taking overall. Another approach which we could take, and I'll probably end up using some of this, is an approach which the church fathers adopted and became sort of quite common from the Middle Ages on in Christian history. That was to sort of view the whole history of the world in three stages. And the three stages roughly correspond to the three parts of the Christian creed, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, which we use every Mass. How does it begin? It says, I believe in, let's say, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That's the first part of the creed. The second part of the creed is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, etc., etc. That's the second part of the creed. And the third part, of course, is, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, etc. So this is the three parts of the creed. And great Christian bishops and teachers and saints in the past were able to think about God's activity through history in terms of three stages, three eras of salvation history. The era of the Father, the era of the Son, the era of the Holy Spirit. Or another way of thinking about it, the era of creation, the era of redemption, and the era of sanctification. These are a very um, useful way of thinking about salvation history because it's so, it, it provides such a, an easy-to-remember scheme, a kind of pattern which we can meditate on, which we can assimilate. And every time we, we uh, celebrate Mass, every time we confess the Creed, you, if you like, reenact the history of salvation, the story of salvation. 
You re-engage it. You re-assimilate yourself to it. So that's why that can be a very useful approach. But again, I won't be strictly sticking to that either. In fact, I don't even know how I would characterize my approach. It's going to be a bit random, but we'll see how it goes. But one thing I wanted to start off with tonight. No matter how technical all this may get in the next tonight and tomorrow, I want to emphasize above all And I want you to remember above all, if you take nothing else away, take away this. is that the history of salvation or the story of salvation is a love story. It's a love story. Now, unless you're a hyper-macho fellow, most of us love love stories. And come on. You don't have to be a kind of you know, saccharine, total romantic to love a love story. But the history of salvation is a love story. So you, if you don't like, like love stories, you better get used to them. You better start loving them because the story of your salvation, the story of your salvation is a love story. And to help us sort of get into the mood for that, I'm not going to light any candles or dim. We may dim the lights, in fact. If we can dim the lights, that would help. I'm going to show you a little little video. I'm going to show you a little love story. And uh, some of you might recognize the name of the title, name in the title. Probably most of you will. But see what you make of this little love story. Because I think this is a good way for us to start thinking about the history of salvation. Let's see how it goes. Thanks, Jonathan. that it was a little bit long. I tried to edit it to make it more suitable for tonight, but uh, I think you'll agree that there were moments in that little story that were very moving, very touching. It's a story of betrayal. A love story, but it's a story of betrayal and unrewarded love. Love that is allowed to be just lost. As one walks away from the marriage, one walks away from faithfulness. And yet this man, this husband, does not let his beloved go. And he doesn't let betrayal be the last word. He reaches out to her. He looks for her. He redeems her. He forgives her. He brings her back into his embrace, to his home. And he won't rest until they're together again. And even if that togetherness means embracing the child from another lover, for him, that's what love calls for. It's a completely unreasonable love, an illogical love. But it's love, faithful love, true love. That was the story of Hosea. Hosea, the prophet. You've heard of him before? A prophet 
whose story and words are recorded in the Holy Scriptures just over halfway through. If you have a Bible, open it up, just go forward a couple of books and you'll be at the book of Hosea. Hosea is a remarkable figure in the Scriptures. He lived about 800 years before Christ and his life and story are unique because they are a kind of parable. They're a parable of God's love relationship with his own people. His people, an adulterous people, a betraying people, a people who run from his love, a people who thwart his love, a people who take him for granted and who sell themselves for short-lived pleasures. This story of Hosea is the story of God's love relationship with his special chosen people, the Israelites, who trace their ancestry back to Abraham. Now, adultery, as you know, in a human marriage occurs when one of the spouses betrays the other by sleeping with someone else. But there can be adultery in a divine human relationship as well. In a divine human marriage, in God's marriage with his people. And adultery happens in that relationship when those people betray God by putting their trust in what is not God. By worshipping idols, by inventing their own worship, inventing their own morality, inventing their own spirituality, by adopting the cultic practices of, and the moral standards of the surrounding cultures. That's exactly what the Israelites did those 800 years before Christ at the time of Hosea. And his own marriage was a crisis marriage. His own marriage was a rocky marriage. And that marriage which he suffered but suffered faithfully, proclaimed in dramatic living form the reality of the situation of God's people Israel in their relation to God. Hosea's marriage and his life story are a kind of salvation history in miniature, a compressed version of what is true on a much grander scale across history, not just between God and those special chosen people, Israel, the children of Abraham, but indeed between God and the whole human race. God, from the very beginning of creation, from the very beginning of his dealings with human beings, has given himself, pledged himself, again and again as a faithful and loving God, as a faithful and loving lover, as a faithful and loving husband, as it were. But the history of salvation is a history of a people, of a human race that spurn that love, that betray God's pledge, that whore after other gods, false gods, counterfeit realities, in a misguided quest for freedom, as though such freedom could be found by evading our true identity as children of the living God, His sons, 
his daughters, called to give ourselves in return to him. Just as Hosea did not give up on his wife, so God, back in Hosea's day, did not give up on Israel. And just as God, back in Hosea's day, did not give up on Israel, so God, in our day, does not give up on us or any of his people, any of his handiwork. Through the words of his prophet, he says this, In that day, declares the Lord, you will no longer call me by the name of Baal. Baal was the name of one of the Canaanite gods of that time. And the people found great delight in spurning the true worship of God and running after Baal, Baal worship, because it promised instant pleasures, it promised instant satisfaction, it promised prosperity and a happy life, and thus it was a very attractive religion. But in that day, declares the Lord, you will no longer call out to me my Baal. Rather, you will call out to me my husband. In that day, I will make a covenant for you. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice. I will betroth you to me in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. And you, you will acknowledge the Lord. The history of salvation is a love story. Have you ever noticed that the Bible begins with a marriage? Marriage of Adam and Eve. Have you ever noticed that the Bible ends with a marriage? The marriage of the church with Christ its Lord. And the whole story that runs between the beginning of creation and the consummation of creation is, if you like, a marriage story. A marriage story which we are part of. No matter what I say tomorrow morning, from here on, salvation history is a love story. The story of God wooing for Himself a bride. First by creating her, but right through history, intervening, courting her, proposing to her, promising to her, giving himself to her, rejoicing and delighting in her. And that her includes you because you are able to be brought into this story through holy baptism through faith in Jesus Christ, through a kind of dramatic insertion into the stage play, the drama of salvation. Not something that happens purely externally to you, but something that you must consent to and give yourself to and say yes to. I'll be part of that story. I'll join in the drama. I'll let God woo me and make me his very own. 
Tonight, I want to leave it there. I want to leave it with this vision of a faithful husband. And tomorrow, when I speak next, I want to go back to the details of how human beings got themselves into this sticky situation where betrayal of God's love became so easy. Betrayal of God's love becomes almost second nature to us. How do we get ourselves into a situation where we can live a double life, where we can be two-timers, say yes to God on a Sunday, but then during the week live as though He didn't exist? Tomorrow we'll look at that and see how this loving husband God rescues us from our own self-made hell. We began our session by making the sign of the cross. We'll end our session with doing that. Just recall as you do, what is this sign you make on yourself? It's the sign of the crucified one. It's a sign that marks you as belonging to someone. Friends, let that be the last word you hear tonight. When you make the sign of the cross, you're saying, I belong to you, my God. You have claimed me as your own. I surrender myself again to you. Do with me what you will. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That was Dr. Adam Cooper with Salvation History. A Love Story, Part 1. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.